All right, well, we come back to this wonderful book of Daniel. Uh, We are in Daniel chapter 11 and verses 21 to 35. And, you know, this, this stuff that we're looking at is crazy exciting, really. Uh, sometimes we lose sight of that excitement and we can tend to think of prophecy as, well, it's vague and it's abstract and it can be hard to follow. And, oh, something is going to happen in a, a long, long, long time in a place far, far, far away. And we sound like we're watching some Star Wars movie or Star Trek and, it, and we don't even understand it. And it's going to happen to people that we don't know, we'll never know, and we'll never see or understand the details of the effects. But this is not the case at all. Our text has shown us the stunning accuracy of prophecy. The specific actions that men will take as God has prophesied, where they will seek to have conquests, what they will do in these areas, who they will employ to make these things happen, wives, daughters, how it will impact their children and what will happen to them, and the exact details of this. And that is amazing, and that is exciting. And this is because we see so far in chapter 11, we've seen the stunning prophecy that has been given to Daniel to help him understand what the plight and judgment is to be of the nation of Israel under the current rule of media Persia that Daniel is writing in and living in. Having come through the Babylonian period, he is now in the media Persian period. And also the coming kingdom of Greece, which is what chapter 11 is primarily focused on. And as discussed last week, Israel is the center of prophecy. Don't lose sight of that. We have a lot of prophecy in our Bibles, and the center of it is Israel. We went into much detail on that last week, and I'd refer you to that message because it is so important to refresh yourselves and understand that at the center of God's redemptive plan is the nation of Israel. It always has been, and it always will be. And this is something that some of our brothers in Christ don't understand well as they proclaim a a different perspective of eschatology, which does not reflect the truth of Scripture or the book of Daniel. And in order to do that, they they allegorize and they say, oh, it, it is complex and it is happening a long, long time away and far, far away. And, and it, it really is not that important. But it is important. Every word in this book is important. And God's written it so that we would know, so that we would know him. If we say, oh, these are abstract details and it could mean this or it could mean that and we allegorize it, what are we saying about God? That he can't communicate to us? That he wrote something that really didn't matter how we take it? No, that is not the God we serve. We serve a God of precision. We serve a God of detail. We serve a God who controls every molecule on this planet at every moment. I don't remember who mentioned it, but recently in one of our Sunday school classes, or perhaps it was our pastor, uh, shared a comment from R.C. Sproul that he said, if at 
any second, there is one random molecule that is not fully within God's control, then the Bible is not true. And the God is not the God who we know him to be. And we understand that God has beautifully conveyed all of these details to us. So far, we've seen the prophecy of 14 kings. And now we're looking at these events from a historical perspective where we see in inconceivably specific detail how astoundingly accurate it is in this prophecy. We moved into the middle section of Daniel 11 in verses 21 to 35 last week and we continue that tonight in our title, Ending Epics of Ancient Israel. Ending Epics of Ancient Israel. And as we look at that, we see playing out before us our theme, which is four facets of Israel's history affirming God's providence. Now, we're looking at the events of the final king of the north. And again, if you have your sheets, we will refer to this a few times. So keep those handy. So we are talking about here the ending events of the king of the north. That is the region north of Israel because Israel becomes the focus. Not only is Israel the focus of God's redemptive plan, Israel is the focus from a worldwide point of view because if you look at a map, it is that land bridge that must be crossed in order for all of the continents and peoples of the northern part of that part of the world to get to the southern Part That is all of Africa. So all of Africa connects through Egypt into Israel, the only land bridge, wherein they move up into all of, all of Europe, all of the Mediterranean regions, which is known as Asia Minor, all of Russia, all of India, and all of Asia and the Far East. So this is a, a massively important piece of land. And they are all battling for this area. So we're looking again at this final king of the north, which we've broadly termed as Syria, not to be con- confused with Syria today. It's the same region, but much, much bigger. And the group that we know as the Seleucids, they are on the right of the chart that I handed out to you. So we're looking at that final king, and he is the most despicable and depraved of the kings we've seen. And his name is Antiochus IV Epiphanes. And he now controls Israel for the first time. Up to this point, Egypt and the Ptolemies and the southern regions of northern Africa, which is where they were, controlled Israel. They controlled the land bridge. Whoever controls the bridge has a lot of power because that means you don't have to fight for that piece of land to get across, to get to the rest of the world. And what's it all about? Everybody is fighting for world domination. And this is what we see going on. And Israel is the key to that. And now, for the first time, the Seleucids can control that and specifically Antiochus Epiphanes. Our first four verses of Verses 21 to 24, I titled, A Time of Intrigue. Because Antiochus' rule was marked by intrigue, or better yet, 
that word is well translated at the end of verse 21 as deceit. So he deceives by uh, by intrigue, by smoothness of tongue, it also is sometimes translated. So Antiochus' rule was again marked by this intrigue. And we looked at Daniel 8 and verses 9 to 14 to see broader details of the prophecy of Antiochus and how he impacts Israel, including the specific halting of the sanctuary sacrifices, which Daniel 8 tells us was for 2,300 days, which is six and a half years. And we know these were specific days because of the way that the day is indicated. By the way, exactly identical with the way that a day is indicated in Genesis 1. There was morning and there was evening one day. And it is the same formula that we see that confirms for us in Daniel 8 that is speaking about 2,300 literal days or six and a third years. And that that time period went from, and again, look at your sheets, went from 171 BC to 164 BC. Look at who the kings are during that period. 171 BC to 164 BC. We'll be coming back to that. So just kind of keep that in the back of your mind as part of this detail. So we see this impact in all that's going on here. And that the peace or the tranquility mentioned in both verses 21 and 24 reflect his Antiochus's protection, it reflects his control and his treaty with the final king of the south, who is Ptolemy VI. So this is uh, an important understanding for us to recognize. And then in verses 25 to 28, after looking at the time of intrigue, we looked at our second point last week, which was a time of invasion. And this details Antiochus, Epiphany, Antiochus IV Epiphany's further endeavors into Egypt and the complex power structure that was ongoing with Ptolemy VI. And you remember a little bit of that conversation wherein Ptolemy VI was a teenage king. He took the throne at six years old. And if you look at where he began in 181 BC, and if we look at the ending of the temple sacrifices in 171 BC, which is the general time frame we're speaking about here, a little past that, and we'll illuminate on that, he's now about 16 years old. So Antiochus comes in, the uncle, because again, the, his, his mother was Antiochus's sister, whole mess there, all back a couple of messages, you can listen to it again. And so he comes in to help this child king. Because not only is, is this king Ptolemy VI young, but he has all of these power brokers in Alexandria. Alexandria is in western Egypt on the Mediterranean. And here, these power brokers have decided, oh, this young king doesn't know what he's doing, and we're going to step in. And so they bring in his brother and sister against him. So Antiochus comes in to say, I'm going to help you, young king. I'm going to be your friend. And we talked about that Middle Eastern 
uh, motto or slogan that the, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And that this is a perfect illustration of that particular aspect. So he comes in to help and to try to control the situation. And Antiochus protects Ptolemy, but he was unsuccessful in taking the capital of Alexandria. Because he's told him he's going to help him. But all along, what do we know about him? The time of intrigue. He's slippery. He's deceitful. He's a horrible individual. So all along he's thinking, oh, I'm going to help you. I'm going to help you right out the door as I take over Egypt. Because all of these men want to do what their predecessor, Alexander the Great, at the top of your chart did. They want it all. I'm not happy with the peace. I want it all. So this is what Antiochus is thinking in trying to help Ptolemy. And on Antiochus's return to the north, he had the resistance in Israel. You remember he placed Ptolemy VI in Memphis under protection, but he failed to take Alexandria. And as he heads back north, he struck down a crushing blow to Israel. Where Dr. MacArthur reports that the extra biblical sources indicate that in that battle, that as Antiochus marched back through Israel, which he possessed and controlled, that he killed 80,000 men, that he took 40,000 men as slaves, and that he took another 40,000 men and sold them to others in slavery. Israel is roughly the size of the Los Angeles Basin. Slightly different parameters, but only about 35 to 40 miles wide and just over 100 miles north to south and not nearly as heavily populated. So when he went through and he killed or captured 160,000 men, that had a massive impact. And let's remember, it wasn't just that. He also took all of the artifacts of the temple. He took the golden altar. He took the lampstand. He took the table of the showbread. He took the golden instruments of serving. He stripped the gold off the doors. So he went through and he raised havoc in Israel. And it was a horrific situation. And this was all because of an effort that Israel had to depose the high priest who he had placed in that role. Remember, no king in Israel anymore. So the high priest is the head Eddie. And he takes out the true priest from the Aaronic lineage and he puts in his own high priest. And because they were trying to get rid of him, he comes in and wreaks havoc and stops all of this. By the way, Antiochus has already stopped the proper Jewish sacrifices. He didn't stop the sacrifices completely. Note, it's the proper sacrifices. How did he do that? He took out the rightful high priest. And he installed his priest. So no longer do we have someone seeking to obey, although impossibly and ineffectively, the true sacrifices. So Antiochus stopped the sacrifices in 171 BC. Now in 169 BC, he removes the temple articles. Okay, 
you've now given us a false priest. Now you've come in and you've taken all the stuff that we're supposed to do our sacrificial system with. And so what are we going to do? He's further deriding and declining the sacrifices. But there's more to come. So buckle up. Well, this takes us to our third point, a time of annihilation. A time of annihilation in verses 29 to 31. Look in your Bibles at Daniel 11 and verse 29. At the appointed time, he will return and come into the south. Again, Antiochus Epiphanes, Antiochus IV Epiphanes is our subject. At the appointed time, he will return and come into the south. But this last time, it will not turn out the way it did before. For ships of Katim will come against him. Therefore, he will be disheartened and will return and become enraged at the Holy Covenant and take action. So he will come back and show regard for those who forsake the Holy Covenant. Forces from him will arise desecrate the sanctuary fortress and do away with the regular sacrifice and they will set up the abomination of desolation. Very important term and we'll see a lot of detail about it. Well, in verse 29, Antiochus again strikes to capture Egypt, the southern kingdom. Remember, this has been what's going on since verse 4. Alexander the Great dies, 323 BC. The kingdom is parceled out in verse 4 into the four points of the compass. Not north, south, east, and west, but to four generals in different regions. And there's been war ever since. Each of those generals wanting the whole piece of the pie. Keep in mind how big this pie is. Alexander the Great conquered all of the modern world. I mean, when you talk about what the Ptolemies had with Egypt and northern Africa, that's a huge amount of land. When you think of what the Seleucids had with Syria and the Middle East and some of Asia Minor, huge piece of land. So there's all of this stuff, but it's not enough. They want more. So they're battling to get it all. So this is what's been going on since the beginning. And we've gone from four kings in verse 4 down to two kings. The kings of the north in Syria and the Seleucids and the kings of the south in Egypt and the Ptolemies. So we're also told in verse 29 that this will be Antiochus Epiphanes' final endeavor into the southern kingdom of Egypt. We'll find out more about that what means as we move or what that entails as we go along. We recall that on his last incursion into Egypt that he was uh, largely victorious, but again, he didn't conquer Alexandria, the main seat of power at that time. He set up Ptolemy in Memphis on the Nile River. However, concurrent with this, the Alexandrian power brokers had set up his brother as a king in that part of Egypt. So we have two kings in Egypt the alleged rightful one in Ptolemy VI, and now his brother, Ptolemy VII, Eurgates. And we don't see him on our list, and we'll find out that he, was, he never came in to take power. But they set up this other king in Alexandria, and these are two brothers. Well, pretty quickly they decide, we shouldn't be infighting, we're both family. 
So we should make a treaty with one another. Plenty of land over there in Western, I said Eastern Egypt, it's Western Egypt. Plenty of land over there in Western Egypt, onward into Northern Africa. Plenty of land for me around the Nile and over to Eastern Egypt and to the South. So we'll make a treaty and we're just going to decide to get along. Okay, and, and, and to agree to disagree on those other issues, but without warring against one another. Well, as they do this, uh, Antiochus finds out about it, and he is none too, in ha- too happy about what's gone on. Antiochus viewed this as a breach of the agreement that he made with Ptolemy VI to place him in safety in Memphis. And thus, he prepared for and invaded Egypt again. And verse 29 concludes that it will turn out the way it did before. That it will turn out the way it did before. He was victorious the first time, but he did not completely take over the land. And he will not be so this time. That it will not turn out, excuse me, let me rephrase that. In verse 29 it says, it will not turn out the way it did before. He was effectively successful before without taking the whole country. It will not be like that this time. He will not have the success that he experienced on his prior battle. Note the element of time is stressed so heavily in our text. If you've got your outlines and you've been looking at them, you note that each one of our points has the word time in it. And it wasn't just because that would make a nicely alliterated outline, which uh, I do tend to go a little overboard on. But it actually comes out of our text, which I try to bring all of my points out on. In verse 21 and verse 24, we saw that it was a time of tranquility or peace. And we see time again in verse 27 with the last Hebrew word translated as appointed time. Note that, appointed time. And when we see this, we're drawn to ask two questions about this appointed time. Number one, when is it? And number two, with respect to it, who is it that is doing the appointing? These are the key components that we're trying to understand. And from the time of prophecy, the when is usually not well known. I say usually because blaring exceptions to this rule is Daniel chapter 9 in the 70 week vision where we get exact detail, not to the year, not to the month, but to the very day about when we are going to see the details of the first advent of Messiah. Also, Jeremiah 25 and 29 and the 70-year judgment are not in keeping with that ambiguous time frame that often associated with prophecy. But time is huge here in verse 29. It begins with the same word from verse 29, appointed time. And this draws us back to the second question, Of who appoints time? Well, the answer is God, right? It is God that is in charge of this. God appoints the times. God is orchestrating every time, every season, every rising and setting of the sun, and the ordaining of every event, of every second, of every one of those days. 
God's in charge of this. And he is doing as best fits the character of his will. It's interesting, and we don't see this as clearly in our translation, but the last two Hebrew words in verse 29 also deal with time. There are three distinct words that reference time in one verse. A literal translation of that final concluding Hebrew phrase would be, but the first time will not become like the last time. The emphasis on these three stages of time in one verse is not to be missed. The last two usages illuminate specific events and the consecutive occurrence of those events. First and then last. Which God has appointed. And you, you get a still more clear picture of God's sovereign control of all the details of how his providence works. And, and that's what we need to see as we look into the nuances of this incredible verse. The first clause of verse 30 then tells us why the events of verse 29 will occur. Again, don't miss the stunning accuracy of the prophecy now seen by our perspective Historically, for ships of Katim will come against him. Now, if you were a, a, a scholar of the Hebrew language and you looked up the word Katim, you would find that usually Katim is a translation for Cyprus, for Cyprus. The Jewish historian Josephus details Katim as often being translated as Cyprus. And Dr. MacArthur notes that this is exactly where the naval fleet came from that came against Antiochus as he is seeking to invade Egypt. Josephus then goes on to note that the word Katim could mean the... uh, northern coastlands of the Mediterranean, but that it was also used specifically of Rome. Specifically of Rome. Rome is again on the scene. The fourth empire of the vision of Daniel chapter 2. Verse 18 of Daniel already introduced Rome into the power players of this time. And this was Rome driving Antiochus III, the Great, out of the northern Mediterranean and making him sign a treaty in 188 BC, very near the end of his life and his reign. Look again at the chart of kings. And as you look on the right... Third from the bottom at Antiochus III the Great, you notice the end of his life is 187 BC. So this defeat to Rome and the treaty became his ultimate demise. And we spoke about that a couple weeks ago in our message. So Antiochus III's reign ended in 187, one year after the Roman treaty of 188. Notice something else on the left-hand column and the end of the last king of the Ptolemies. Ptolemy VI life ends in what? 146 BC. Now, 
When we were speaking about our first chart months ago in Daniel, and we started talking about the beginning of the Roman Empire, I mentioned that the Roman Empire begins in 146 BC. And it begins with the end of the final king of the Ptolemies. This is the defeat of the Ptolemies and Egypt. So Rome is coming. They've been developing and were a force to be reckoned with all the way back to 188 BC, defeating Antiochus III the Great. And they continue to grow. And now, in 168 BC, they drive Antiochus IV Epiphanes out of Egypt as he decides not to engage Rome in war and departs. And Rome will come to full term and full force in just 22 years. But again, notice the specificity. Not an army. When we think of Rome, we don't think of a navy. We think of a massive military force on the ground. We think of legions, groups of 6,000 soldiers, well-arrayed, In full battle armor with large shields and small shields. With large spears and small daggers. And all of that's detailed in the New Testament. But we're seeing here not an army but a Roman navy. The ships of Katim. In a book called A History of the Potomac Empire. We're told that the Roman consul came ashore in Egypt and handed Antiochus an edict from the Roman Senate commanding his withdrawal. When handed the letter, Antiochus asked for time to consider the letter. The Roman consul, who has just delivered the letter, took a stick and drew a circle in the sand around Antiochus. And he said, you shall have time to decide as long as you are in that circle. And when you decide to leave, we will have your decision. And I suspect, have your head if you don't make a proper decision. Now that is a line in the sand. So we, we recognize all of this, but how did Rome know? Do you remember Antiochus' last departure from Egypt through Israel? Of course you do. We just talked about it. Where he robbed the Jewish temple of all the gold implements, stripped the gold off the door, took 160,000 either by death or captivity. Well, the Jews are not happy with this. And they were complaining. Can you think of any other time in history where we hear of the Jews complaining, mumbling, or murmuring? Let's see. Uh, In Egypt, complaining about Moses and Aaron in captivity? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, In the wilderness, more complaining? Oh, yeah, lots more complaining in the wilderness. Um, And in the promised land, living in rebellion, and then complaining about God's judgment during the time of Judges. Oh yeah, there was some complaining going on there as well. And, and up to the captivity, complaining, and into the captivity, complaining, and after the captivity, complaining. 
The Jewish people are so famous about complaining. If you talk to them, they make jokes about one another and they're complaining. And, and we think of all of this. But let, let me remind you about a New Testament verse that's so important for us to focus on in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 11. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10 and 11, Now these things happened to them, that is Israel, as an example. And they were written for our instruction upon whom the end of the ages has come. Hmm. Was written for our instruction. So before we're too hard on our Jewish friends, let's turn the laser guided bunker buster bombs on our own hearts. Do you remember a message I gave on Philippians 2? Part of it was on verse 14 Do all things without grumbling or complaining. Do you remember that Greek word for grumbling? Gagusmas, very good. Gold star back there. And if you don't remember, ask two of our young theologians, uh, Michael and Danny Blaha, who were home a few days later, and one of them was giving the business to his brother, saying, you're gagusmasing about his complaining, and Nick overheard this, and being a young theologian, not quite fully developed in his Greek pronunciation, Nick was concerned that perhaps there needed to be a little discipline for whatever that word might be, because it didn't sound good, until Elizabeth, who's been listening to it, stepped in and said, oh no, that's from Pastor Scott's sermon. And it is that onomatopoetic word, Gagusmas, gagusmas, gagusmas. Grumbling, complaining. So how about with you, beloved? What is it with you that has you gagusmasing? Gossip, grousing, grumbling, complaining. Is it the weather? Is it politics? Is it people? Is it your husband, your wife, your boss, those employees? There's a scripture for every one of these. Job on the weather. Romans 13 on politics. Hebrew 12 on being at peace with all men. Bosses, employees in Ephesians and Colossians. Or like dear old Adam. It was the woman you gave me. Brothers and sisters, that woman or man is God's greatest earthly gift that you ever will receive if you didn't take great efforts and I do mean great efforts yesterday to show them how special they are then perhaps tonight is a night for some confession and repentance can I get an amen a little there but you know a little quiet I I hope that's just you know uh, either in agreement or recognizing a little hard attitude but my brothers and sisters If we're complaining and if we're honest with ourselves, we do all the time. We're complaining against God. We're complaining against His providence. May it not be so with us. Verse 30 goes on to describe the attitude and action of Antiochus IV Epiphanes and how he takes his anger out 
on the children of Israel. We can already contemplate that that application, can't we? But we'll come back next time to see these last aspects of the interaction of Antiochus IV Epiphanes and Israel. Because I believe that the Lord has given us plenty to think about for one evening. So may he continue to implant his word in our heart and strengthen us until he draws us together again. Father, thank you. Thank you for the beauty of your word. Thank you for the specificity, Father. I continue to be overwhelmed in the smallness of my mind at how magnificent you are, how perfect and specific, how you've given us so much detail because you know us better than we know ourselves. You know, Father, that we are fault finders. You know that we are doubters. You know that we are weak in our understanding, that we too can be grumblers and complainers. Father, strengthen us against these things. Help us as we look into your word to understand how amazing you are and all that you've done for us. How much you love us, that you would send your, send your son, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, to die on the cross, to pay the penalty which we could never pay and to die in our place. Father, we are so thankful for your incredible love. We're so thankful for our time together tonight. And I praise you, Father, for my brothers and sisters that are here with us tonight at the church. I praise you, Father, for our brothers and sisters that are listening online. And Father, that all would recognize that we must have a deeper commitment to you. We must be strengthened in our faith and we must recognize as we perceive how magnificent and how majestic you are that it must empower us in the way that we live and the way that we must proclaim Christ. Father, thank you for that gift. We ask that you'd be glorified, that you'd see us to our home safely until you draw us together again. Help us to continue to contemplate and ponder the aspects of this message, but more importantly, the aspects of your word and specifically how your word applies to our hearts. For this is how you've written it, to speak through our minds and to our hearts. And we praise you. Ask that you'd be glorified in all this, praying it in the holy name of our King, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.